that's one of the benefits of investing in real estate. Does not mean that it's uh, recession proof. Nothing is. Otherwise, if there's no risk, there's no reward. If there's no risk, you would not be getting you know any income. So when when you invest and you get income, it's because you were willing to take the risk that one day things may not be as good. Um, but that's why you know most of my wealth is invested in real estate. Let's get ready to scale. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host. I have Jeanette Robinson with me and Ryan Rosletsky. Um, and today we're going to talk about um, Biden's free land initiative, about, um, you know, Moody's downgraded um, the U.S. credit to negative. Uh, we're going to talk about that, what that means to the economy and to real estate, and also about REIT's liquidity. So just wanted to start with we are not registered investment advisors or investment advisors, generally speaking, always consult with your attorney, your investment advisor, the people that you trust before making any investment decisions. Um, we are multifamily owners and operators. We own assets across the U.S., class B value add, and we work with high net worth individuals and family offices. So we're sharing our perspective you know, we're sharing with you what we see in the real estate market. We're talking about the good, the bad, the ugly, what we love, we don't like, um, and, uh, you know, our uh, successes and challenges. There are always challenges, especially in real estate. So just wanted to start um, with that. So uh, how, how are you uh, doing, guys? How are you doing today? Doing great. It's uh, freezing cold in Boston, so I'm very awake and alert. Uh, you know, I don't think that Ryan is having to suffer through the same cold ship as the rest of us today. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. I am doing tremendous for a Tuesday. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's good to hear. Let's uh, let's get started. Um, Jeanette, I know this is a topic that uh, you you were excited about, um, and and you know, essentially what we're doing with this podcast uh when we have the trio recording we just bring the conversations many times that we have in the office when we're talking about things that are happening in real estate and the economy in general uh so jenna do you want to walk us through what's happening who's giving up free land and what is buying trying to do yeah so you know i really respect the the efforts and the creativity of tackling, you know, really hard challenges like affordable housing. Um, you know, of course, and we've talked about this on the show before, there, there's a lot of challenges around that. And um, one of the things that Biden's team is, is initially trying to do, and at first it was the headline that really caught my eye because it was like free land, but basically the Biden administration has put together a program that is actually offering basically any land that's actually owned by the Department of Transportation and either has standing assets on it or maybe doesn't even have assets on it, but uh, they could be any type of commercial asset. What they're actually doing is this is a new program that's trying to incentivize developers to come in there and basically repurpose 
um, you know, these types of assets into affordable housing, or at least a portion of it has to be affordable housing. It does have to be located near some type of transportation hub. So they're also trying to kind of revitalize, you know, certain cities. Um, but it's just very interesting because they're actually willing to give the land away for free um, to these developers um, both for for-profit, non-profit, private sector, it's kind of up for everyone's grabs as long as they're willing to make a commitment to go in and either repurpose, say, unused office space and redevelop it into, you know, mixed use or multifamily, um, you know, things along those lines. So it, it looks very enticing. Um, however, of course, nothing is ever free. And so, uh, you know, while it's a really good, uh, you know, uh, attention grabbing headline, uh, the more I started looking into it, the more complicated it looks. And so, you know, I just thought it was really interesting and I wanted to kind of bring it up because I can see why people get excited about it, but I don't think they understand the complexities on the other side, starting first and foremost with, um, this is a federal initiative, right? But what about zoning restrictions, permitting, et cetera, on the state level or the local level? So, you know, there's a whole lot of people that have to agree to be kind of working on the same wavelength for a lot of this to even actually effectively kick off. And, you know, then there's also the challenges that we haven't even gotten into, but we can, which is why it's very difficult to you know, have strong revenue and a, a lot of return on some of these types of affordable housing models. So, you know, Ryan, I think that's something that you can speak to even more so because it sounds great. So everyone's going to think like, hey, we should totally be doing this. Why aren't you guys doing this? Well, because there's a lot of complexity around that. Yeah, Jeanette, a great summary. And, and you really touched on a lot of the components. So it, fundamentally, what the government's trying to do is ease the burden to some of these developers that um, are facing tremendous headwinds when it comes to um, inflation and, and overall development. And most specifically in the affording housing sector, the developers are facing increased costs above and beyond market rate, um, conventional apartments, or even hospitality. There's a lot of different components going in there. So really what the government's doing is working with some of their affiliates to ultimately ease the burden of the cost. And really, when you think of hard costs, soft costs, and, and land costs, really what the government's doing with, with the support of the, the DOT and um, the, the Railroad Rehabilitation and Improvement Financing Program, they're, they're offering $35 billion roughly in lending capacity for large-scale projects. And uh, what it's going to do is finance those conversions. But like you said, it's got to be near transportation. That's one of the biggest components of it. So what, what they're ultimately doing is the HUD, um, for example, is, is trying to support the pre-development um, acquisition, construction, and other costs. So what they're, they're offering is $10 billion in grant funding to support the acquisition and rehabilitation associated with office-to-residential conversions near these transportation systems. And approximately 20% of the total all-in cost for a developer is land. So ultimately, what these programs are, are doing is, is essentially offering no cost to the developer from a land perspective. And you just mentioned, you still have the zoning, you still have the permitting, you still have the labor costs, which are the large components of the expense. So it's still incredibly difficult to build, but the government's trying to step in and, and support that um, initiative by incentivizing some of the developers. 
And it, it's coming down to a lot of different aspects of, of greenhouse emissions. Approximately 30% of, of greenhouse emissions is stemming from the building sector. So not only are it, will it, it be support the carbon footprint in, in the economy, but it'll also try to incentivize the fundamental issue, which is ultimately we, we don't have enough affordable housing in the United States. Very true. Yeah. You know, yeah. I thought it was really interesting that first of all, only 15% of office space out of 105 of the largest cities in the country is even eligible for the conversion. And then Ellie, this is the part that I really wanted you to kind of chime in on because let's let's be candid. Okay, great. These developers go in, they repurpose, you know, there's only 15% of office space available even for these type of rehabs essentially, but they go in, they do it. They change everything over. They bring in some tenants. They try to stabilize it. Then what do they do with it? Yeah, and and I actually have a bit of a a different um, view on this. And you know, there's always kind of a tension between wanting to jump on an opportunity and react quickly when there's an opportunity. Sometimes it's not going to stay there for for much longer, and you want to be able to be nimble and grab that opportunity with with two hands. When it comes to an opportunity that um, is is essentially been driven by a change in in the regulation, um, you know, space. I'm very very careful, um, because things can change. Um, so let's say this, you know, we somebody moves forward, buys uh, a land or an asset with the intention of um, taking advantage of this, and then uh, the next president or someone else decides that, you know what, that's not working very well. Let's change it a little bit. Let's, um, let's you know, charge some in, uh, increased tax or let's um, kind of reverse part of the plan back. And that could be a little bit dangerous. So it's, it's a similar view that I had um, on, uh, essentially there's a lot of talks um, and none of, those talks really materialized, but over the years there were talks about kind of scaling back and not giving 100% of the tax benefits that were promised to entrepreneurs. And so just being in that unstable environment, I think is a little bit risky, unless we know that if we're moving forward and all the numbers, you know, assuming that the numbers actually work well in a certain project, that there's not going to be any change in the benefits that you're receiving because you're making a certain um, investment decision based on what you know in the market, what you you know expect to remain. So I'm just very cautious about those changing um, regulatory kind of, um, you know, th that environment because it can really impact the deal. And I always like to say that if the deal makes sense without any regulation changes or without any refinances or assuming any very successful, you know, tax appeal, the deal still needs to work. If one or all of these, other aspects are working, then it's a cherry on top and this deal is going to be even better. But it cannot be predicated upon those um, promised kind of, uh, you know, aspects of the investment. So I would just caution everyone when, when these things, these things have a tendency of not continuing, you know, um, throughout the years in exactly the same format that they are, you know, that they're being, um, you know, promoted or initially um, you know, form. So that's the one thing that I, I mean, there's so many 
that I don't like about it. And there's so many unknowns in real estate. So if you take regulation or certain new, pro, you know, um, plans, uh, initiatives that may or may not exist a year from now, that could be really dangerous. And I can't not talk about the mansion tax in, you know, Los Angeles, which puts things, as, uh, uh, I, I forget the numbers exactly, but 5% above a certain uh, number. Um, and it, it really, you know, screwed a lot of uh, home builders. So essentially LA wanted to generate more income by increasing the the tax when you sell a house above a certain number. And what happened is it just the market. Nobody's moving. So if you own your house, you don't want to pay that much. You're not, you're not, you know, selling, you're staying put. It's already hard to sell homes right now because of the high interest rates. So um, on top of that, all the builders and the developers that were building homes and now, you know, their business plan was based on a certain number on a certain, you know, amount of profit. And now they have to take a big chunk of it and give it uh, and pay it as a tax that screwed up a lot of their, um, you know, plans, their, their business plans and construction is going to go down. So, and I don't understand how they're, I mean, let, give people, give businesses 18, 24 months to make decisions, to finish, you know, wrapping up whatever they're building. So that new tax is not going to be imposed on them, but it was, it just, it's almost retroactively because you already started building something, not knowing that this tax is ever going to happen. And then it's just, it's just a reality. Um, so that's why I'm very, very careful when it comes to regulations that can emerge out of nowhere and then, uh, you know, change, um, which is why it's not, I, I know, Janet, you're very excited about this one. I'm much less excited. Um, not all to mention the complexity of transitioning and transforming office to apartments. This is the whole, and we, we covered it, um, you know, last time. Any any kind of uh, final remarks on, on this topic before we move to the next one? I know I've been talking a lot, so I just wanted to see if you guys had uh, anything to add. No, I mean, what I'm excited about is is I do like innovation and I like seeing people at least having the courage to try to tackle some really challenging issues. Unfortunately, I think the model is completely flawed. I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, when you come into a position like this where the next administration could absolutely undo this, it really just brings the burden right back onto average people. And so there is way too much risk, in my opinion, associated with it. And unfortunately, also, Typically, the numbers, you know, at least Ryan, you're definitely our in-house expert on this, but numbers, you know, it's hard to make everything pencil out when you're looking at conversions. They're just so expensive. Uh, and then on top of that, if you're going to do that big of a project, you know, and then you have to allocate a certain percentage of it to affordable housing, that also makes the models not sustainable. And so that's, you know, I, I appreciate the innovation. That's what I'm excited about. I hope people continue to be in, you know, innovative in trying to find ways to address, you know, larger problems within kind of our economy and society. Unfortunately, this is not the one, um, but I did also just think it was a very flashy um, headline. Woo, free land, like really? Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, the concept's but... great. And, and exactly what you just said, Jeanette, it's, it's, there's very minimal room for error. And as I mentioned, the, the cost of labor, land, materials, 
um, and financing is is just really putting downward pressure on these developers, specifically in the the affordable space. So it, it it's extremely difficult and complex to do so. And um, again, the initiative that the concept is great that there's federal funding to support the the burden of those costs, but um, I, I just don't know if if it's truly a feasible project and and there there's room for um, profit for these these developers the way they can because the capital is is not infinite. You, you when yeah. when a developer is looking at raising funds or whether it's their own internal capital, it, they have to make decisions on where to build. So the, the, if it was infinite capital, yes, go go try the concept. But when you're choosing between one project that has a higher risk profile, as Ellie mentioned, the regulatory uncertainty alone is extremely uncomfortable for a developer. So if, if they have a choice between two projects, something like this conversion, just because they're getting 20% um, of their, their costs reduced by free land through these programs and, and grants, you, you does it make sense? Does it offset the return you'll see from building an affordable, um, or excuse me, a, a market rate conventional apartment? So it, again, the way I look at it is the concept's great. Um, the execution is, is gonna be critical. Yeah, definitely agree. All right. Well, before we move to our next topic, um, we're going to take a quick break. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right, we are back. Let's talk about what Moody did. So Moody downgraded US credit to negative. Um, and, you know, Jeanette, you work, um, you know, closely with our investors. Uh, some of them are doctors, um, you know, lawyers, business owners, tech executives, uh, some family offices. Um, why, you know, first of all, are investors concerned about it? And if they do, why? Why should they or should they not be concerned about what just happened? Well, you know, this is really interesting because first we were talking about headlines that were grabbing a lot of attention, like Biden giving away free land. And now we're talking about a headline that a lot of people were initially blowing off, but now it's starting to be taken a little bit more seriously. So, you know, it's really interesting. I looked back to really track the timeline of this and basically investor sentiment and in response to this over time. So the very first time that this happened was by the S&P. The S&P was the first to actually downgrade the U.S. credit rating, and it was back in 2011. And for the most part, you know, investor sentiment was like, eh, who cares what the S&P thinks? You know, we're going to march right along. It's just their rating, whatever. Um, you know, so no one really took it very seriously at the time. But then this year in 2023, so the S&P way back in 2011 was trying to kind of wave a flag about this. Now on August 1st, Fitch was the next group to come in and actually downgrade the U.S. credit rating. So, okay, investors kind of like, eh, eh, you know, I'm not going to worry too much about it. It should be fine. Uh, literally, treasury bonds even rose, you know, the next day after the announcement of it. Same thing with Moody's. But now, 
Now that Moody's has also done it, now we're talking about the S&P, we're talking about Fitch, and now we're adding in Moody's, all downgrading the U.S. credit rating. There are ripple effects, and it is starting to make some very savvy investors nervous. A lot of folks still have their head kind of in the sand and are not worried about this, but there's a few key considerations that I am actually concerned about that I think investors need to be paying attention to, and I've spoken with a few investors that agree with me on this. So, you know, the first implication is, you know, we look to the Fed to, for better or worse, quote, bail us out, right? If if the whole country starts to have a bunch of problems, we're all going to turn to the Fed and we're going to rely on them to be the one that has the answer or the approach or the power, you know, to step in and help resolve issues. And the concerning aspect about this for investors actually ties back to even like Signature Bank at this point, which, as you know, rattled a lot of investor confidence for a moment. You know, it was a little scary for investors. But see, the implications potentially that people need to be kind of observant of is that, you know, debt is going to become more expensive for the country, the federal debt, because they're going to have to borrow at higher rates because now we have a lower credit rating, right? Just like an average consumer. But that can potentially roll down and basically impact regional banks, which are already, you know, boom, we kind of had a short burst. Everyone was a little concerned. Everything looks like it's calmed down. But, you know, just this week, uh, there's a story this morning I read in the news about how, you know, signature banks, uh, all of their assets are being put up for auction. And half of them are multifamily assets. And half of those assets are actually rent controlled uh, multifamily assets in New York. And those loans are being sold at 70 cents on the dollar uh, up in auction. And so, you know, some investors are identifying this as kind of opportunity, because you can see that hey, as these public systems start to break down, this allows the private sector to come in and really you know, see some very unique opportunities. And indeed, private lenders are very much on the rise in grabbing up some of these opportunities. But at the same time, it is, I think, a cautionary tell that we can't always rely on the Fed to necessarily be in the position to come in and save the day. So from the private sector, you know, what, what's most important to investors is they want to know that we have our financial house in order. They want to know that we're in a position to be able to weather some choppy water without needing the Fed to rescue us from it. Um, and, and, you know, it's really security and preserving people's capital that is one of the things that I know is most important to investors right now. They work very hard to, you know, achieve accreditation status, to build their wealth, and they want to make sure that they can protect it. And, you know, the other possibility, you know, from this downgrade is, like I said, after Moody's, the treasury, um, the treasury bonds actually shot up, meaning that they became cheaper, so more people bought them. But at what point do those shift from being value, high risk, high reward bonds to junk bonds if the Fed is to actually collapse? So, you know, for, for investors that are in the stock market, you know, there's always going to be some days that are great, but there's a lot of volatility. And all of a sudden overnight, what is a great, you know, 10-year bond can turn into a complete junk bond in someone's portfolio. Whereas, you know, real estate is maybe not as, quote, exciting and dynamic, you know, as the stock market can be, but it is somewhere that's a lot safer in general 
to be able to preserve your capital and avoid these types of volatile shifts. So, you know, yeah, I mean, investors are looking at it. Some are blowing it off and some of the more savvy ones are paying attention to the repercussions and are looking for those opportunities to be created. I actually think, of, uh, you know, real estate, especially uh, multifamily is exciting. And that's <laughs> what I do. Uh, I, I keep, you know, buy what I love. Um, but it's, it's definitely a, uh, you know, a very valid point. And it's interesting. You know, I remember years ago, I got a phone call from one of our investors who said, um, just lost half a million dollars in the stock market. I'm moving the rest of my money to real estate and real estate. Of course you can buy at the wrong time or buying the wrong area. Um, and, and, and that's going to be tough but you do not have that volatility. So that's why real estate is, is more of a cycle, meaning every time there's a shift, it's there for a while. And then it just turns to the next part of the cycle and it stays there for a little bit, you know, for several months, several years, and then it, there's another shift. So that volatility of up and down, up and down, um, that happens very, um, kind of almost overnight and, and, um, you know, uh, very quickly and it keeps going up and down. You, you don't have that volatility with real estate. Real estate has other challenges. Uh, like I've mentioned, if you bought the wrong, you know, you put the wrong debt, you were too aggressive, you bought the wrong area, um, you can lose your money. That, that's a real concern, especially if your loan is due, you cannot put another loan, you have to sell the loss. That is a real, um, you know, that, that is risky. That's a real danger to the wealth that you've built, or at least the part that you put in that asset. Um, but it's not likely that across the board, you're going to lose all your money in all real estate investments if you diversify it enough. Stock market, you know, once the stock market goes down, it's you're more likely to lose a bigger portion of the amount of, of the, the funds that you put in. In real estate, not everything is, um, you know, if you diversify across different sponsors, different markets, different asset classes, they're not all going to be impacted. And I think that's something um, that's one of the benefits of investing in real estate does not mean that it's uh, recession proof. Nothing is. Otherwise, if there's no risk, there's no reward. If there's no risk, you would not be getting, you know, any income. So when when you invest and you get income, it's because you were willing to take the risk that one day things may not be as good. Um, but that's why, you know, most of my wealth is invested in real estate. And that's why I like to keep it that way, because even if the market changes and, and you have many times you can hold on, even if you just break even, there's no profit, but you don't, you know, you don't have to sell. If you have enough runway, once the market turns again, you can recoup your investment. Um, in a sense, kind of like, uh, you know, in the stock market, but you can recoup your investment um, and still, you know, have a very successful uh, you know, investment. Um, so I really like real estate as an investment vehicle. And I think, you know, multifamily, the demand drivers have not gone anywhere. The debt is very, the debt is, is not what it used to be. So downgrading the U S credit, you know, the way that it will impact real estate is that it's actually going to cause the lenders to tighten their regulations and their requirements. And whenever the lenders, um, whenever they feel that, it's a riskier environment, it translates into higher interest rates. And if you're a strong borrower, 
You can be buying the same, you know, two buildings, the same area, same identical, let's say NOI, but one sponsor, one owner is more experienced than the other one. They're going to get a lower interest rate because the risk is being assessed a bit differently. Um, but when you add that, uh, you know, credit downgrade, that it will impact lenders. They're already very caution, um, cautious and are already seeing other uh, lenders, you know, assets going, uh, you know, on on sale and that does not make them happy. So, you know, I think fear has been always been, there's always a cost, right? Um, and being more risk averse than ever uh, because of the environment, I think, you know, that's going to be impact of, maybe higher uh interest rates um when it comes to you know new loans today yeah that you you guys both hit on all different components of of what i would essentially allude to the the downgrade or and really it wasn't necessarily the credit itself like like um standard and poor's did back in 2011 but when when there's an actual downgrade in the u.s credit rating exactly what you just said ellie is interest rates are going to rise so increased borrowing rates for consumers um, since government government bonds and U.S. Treasury, treasuries were historically um, safe, I mean we we consider them the risk free rate of return. So as you start to increase the risk of of borrowing from the U.S. government, things start to change. And uh, Jeanette, you mentioned kind of the impact on the stock market. So uh, I remember reading something back in 2011, three days after Standard and Poor's lowered from a AAA to a double A plus. It, the which was essentially based on an earlier debt ceiling crisis, the S and P fell almost seven percent, and then most recently in August, when when Fitch actually downgraded from again a triple A to a double A plus, um, the the Dow Jones and Nasdaq fell approximately three and five and a half percent respectively. So there there is an impact, and and the markets do perceive that as as additional risk. Um, but it's one thing to note. So it, it's concerning that Moody's is doing this now. They're downgrading their outlook to to negative from stable. If if they come out and and follow the same suit, what's going to happen to to the the overall um, index? And then what? How is that going to translate into capital intensive industries like real estate? Our investor return expectations going to change because the risk free rate is is essentially a higher risk profile, and you're going to be borrowing at a higher cost. And then. The fundamentals of the U.S. economy, we all know, is is as construction costs continue to increase and the cost of capital and, and debt, rather, um, it, it supports the multifamily industry because we're going to be further undersupplied in, in an already undersupplied economy from, from a housing perspective. So there, there's a lot of different components um, from those three rating agencies. If, if Moody's is the third to follow suit, um, we'll, we'll see what happens because the way they're looking at it is... The, the cause of a lot of this is is the declining fiscal stability, which is essentially the balance of, of government spending and, and taxation. And we the government risked a, a default earlier this summer. And then you, you had a near government shutdown that happened earlier this year, which the president narrowly avoided by um, signing the 45 day funding bill back in October to really just keep the U.S. economy afloat. And then also, also for the first time in U.S. history, the Republican Speaker of the House ousted a, a vote of no confidence. That, that's the first time that has ever happened. So all of these components are, are kind of filtering into these credit ratings, um, ultimately being downgraded from, from an outlook. But um, th things are things are really volatile right now. And um, like Ellie said earlier, is the, the, the 
the election coming up next year um, is going to create even more uncertainty to to investors in in all different sectors. You know, I'm glad that you that you touched on what I would say is the elephant in the room, which is, you know, some investors have the perspective that this is all just a big political ploy. It's a big political puppet. It's the pulling of strings between, you know, different administrations trying to battle it out, you know, before we move into the elections. And, you know, but the reality is, is that at the end of the day, what it what I do believe this does is just further drive investors to have greater interest in actually the private sector because it's just too much of a mess. And there's a lot more, frankly, stability to be had in the private sector that can kind of, if it's positioned well, well capitalized, well managed, can kind of remain, for lack of a better term, definitely not immune, but at least partially immune to that drama out there. You know what I mean? And so really, I think it drives you know, investors more into you know, the private sector and into doing investments just like we do. Yeah, that's yeah. actually a great segue into um, kind of the, the REITs liquidity crisis. So I, I'd, I'd love, Jeanette, open up on this one because you and I had a lot of conversations about this. Um, I'm curious to hear your perspective um, of, of what they're facing. And then I'll, I'll kind of, I'd love to kind of dive into um, the fact that a lot of people think that REITs are, are liquid investments, but um, that, that might not always be the case. So go, feel free to to, to chime in and, and tell me what you what you were mentioning last week. Well, you know, so and you touched on it. So I'll just kind of pick it up from right there. So people, you know, basically a REIT is very similar to like, you know, it's kind of like the the public market of almost like multifamily syndication. So you can get in and out of like a bunch of different multifamily properties. But, you know, one of the big differences is when someone invests with us, you know, our, th that investment is not liquid. People cannot just get in and out of an investment as they see fit. And in a publicly traded REIT, that is one of the options they have. So, you know, sometimes they think it's more appealing because they say, oh, well, great. Even though I'm going to pay higher fees, which I don't know why they would want to do that, but even though they're going to pay higher fees, you know, to be part of this REIT, they think that the advantage is that they can be liquid, whereas with uh, someone coming and investing with our group, that is not liquid and they have to wait until we have some type of capital event, whether it's refinancing or a sell, uh, whatever it may be, you know, in order to exit the investment. Well, one of the things that a lot of investors are frustrated about and frankly angry about is that in these REITs, there are supposed to be periods of time that they're allowed to exit the REIT if they would like to do so. And so many investors, basically, it's almost like the same thing we saw with Signature Bank, like a little bank run. This is like a REIT run. Uh, a bunch of investors, you know, as that time became available, opted to want to get their investments out of the REITs and they were not able to actually honor their word and exit all of the investors that wanted to exit because they were having too many investors trying to exit and not enough investors coming in. And so in turn, because of that, that's the liquidity crisis that they're currently dealing with. But it was really Ellie that said something when we were talking about this before that really opened my eyes, which is what they have to do and the decisions they have to make in order to resolve the liquidity crisis, which Ellie, I'll let you speak to that because it was such a great point that they're throwing away good assets. You might think. So when you don't have enough fresh capital to come in so you can allow the older, the current current investors to liquidate and take their money out, you're essentially going to the next best option, which is offloading assets. 
And so I've been hearing some investors say, that's great. Let's, you know, are you guys going after the REITs assets, which we're going after all assets out there. Um, and I, I think that the better assets that we see right now are actually off market. I would say, Ryan, maybe 70% of our pipeline is off market right now. Um, and we're okay. always underwriting, we're always looking for new assets. Those who are marketed are less interesting, but it's still possible to find something. It's more um, the off market portfolios, the off market deals, um, other sellers that we've transacted with that are reaching out and um, interested in selling something quick and off market. Um, these are the real opportunities where we see cap rates, you know, between uh, five and, and, and almost five and a half. Um, but essentially, if you think about it, if I were to manage a REIT and I have, let's say, 50 assets and I need liquidity, which assets would I keep and which assets would I get rid of? I would get rid of the assets that are not well performing. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to you know, get rid of the jewel assets, the the highly cash flowing strong assets. Um, maybe not the the most struggling ones because then it's going to be harder to sell. But not not the uh the the sharp you know the 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 number one assets in my portfolio. And so when you're looking at a REIT that is dumping assets, just ask yourself why this asset and not you know not others. So. Always look for hitting, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, holes in the story. Um, and and um, I can share with you that we have walked some assets that other REITs were dumping. Some of them were nice assets. Um, we got overbid. Um, I'm not saying that those assets are, you know, the they're one of their worst assets, but I'm saying it makes more sense for the REITs to dump the the you know the assets that are not the strong the stronger you know performers and keep the best performing assets that can still generate cash flow so they can still you know pay their investors so just something to think about when you're when when investors are thinking about opportunities the other thing that i would say is that you know investors say well right now there's probably a lot of you know there there will be a lot of opportunities coming up uh, we're already starting to see it but the debt, it, we're not talking about a five and a half cap, uh, you know, deal with a 3%, 4% interest rate. So the debt is really taking a big bite of a potentially very lucrative deal. Um, so it's a bit different. This is not 2007. You're not buying a single family home that was, uh, that somebody bought for $2 million and you're paying 300,000 cash and you're grabbing it only to put, you know, uh, a, a mortgage on it 18 months later and, you know, get a lot of, uh, um, a lot of your capital back. This is, or, or, you know, a profit, this is not it. It's a very, very different, uh, you know, environment. Someone once asked me, so are you buying those assets cash? Well, I'm not going to put 40 million or $80 million cash. That's not happening. So there's always some debt component. Again, this is not 2007. People like to link between them. But going back, I, I've, I've, you know, that taking the conversation to a, kind of a different direction. But going back to the REIT, just the bottom line is always question the narrative. This is something I've learned as an attorney, as a real estate attorney in my past life. There's a narrative and there's a question mark around every narrative and always 
always look for for the true meaning what's driving them what makes sense that they're dumping and, and they're they're dumping not their best performance to so just try and keep that in mind same goes with a lot of the off-market deals if your asset is strong and cash flowing why on earth would you want to get rid of it now unless um you, you know the partnership is is going south or you know your loan is due and you don't want to put a new loan or you decided to get out of multifamily altogether i've seen all of these instances, very interesting opportunities, very interesting markets. Um, but yeah, you know, Ellie, I'll, I'll quantify that for you too. So, so in, and I'll, I'll not dropping too many names here, but we've looked at about 20 deals from two REITs specifically, um, mm -hmm. two of the largest REITs out there. And we looked at 20 deals. We filtered through about 50% of those. So we looked at actually in depth, we underwrote 10 of those deals and we bid on two. So it, it just goes to show is, it, just because they're liquidating, they're not liquidating their cash cows, their high performing assets. Yep. I saw a balance of two. I'd say 80% of the deals we looked at were underperforming or they had a whole lot of supply or collection issues. And then the other 20%, the, the very small few that we actually bid on were really basis plays that these groups bought it back in 2010 to 2015, they've refinanced and they've held it through their life cycle and they can still exit today. Or really I'm speaking over the last 12 months, I'm, I'm really referencing the first two quarters of 2023. Um, those deals were were compelling to us and, and we did get overbid because we were conservative. We weren't willing to um, overpay for, for a high quality asset when we know there, there's still more in the pipeline. So uh, we were competitive, but really I was trying to, um, hit on your point that a lot of the deals we looked at just because they're liquidating doesn't mean they're the most high quality institutional assets in their portfolio. They were selective about which ones they sold to liquidate because as I mentioned, they were using these funds to fund these redemptions. And then I'm going to pivot real quick to what, what Jeanette was saying earlier on the liquidity of, of real estate investment trusts. So th there's a, a fine line between a publicly, or excuse me, a fine distinction between a publicly traded REIT that has liquidity and you trade it on the, the open market on an exchange, but then you have the, um, uh, the what, what they define as non-traded REITs, which like Blackstone's B-REIT, for example, the, those are not liquid, liquid. And the board of directors in the PPM, they can suspend redemptions. They can adjust the policy um, if there's a run on these. So then that you see it, it forces investors to, if they need to liquidate or they truly want to liquidate, they're, 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 they're going into the secondary market or Blackstone, Starwoods of the world. They're allowing you to redeem, but on 75 cents on the dollar. So you're, you're going to take a, a hit on your equity. So um, there's a fine distinction between, like I said, publicly traded and non-publicly traded REITs that trade on, on the, the, the secondary market. All right, guys, let's wrap this up. That was a great conversation. Hopefully next time, next month, we're going to have, uh, let's try and find positive uh, topics to talk about. And not just, you know, the economy is shaky, real estate is better than whatever else is happening there. But even real estate has, you know, some uh, some exposure, which is very true. Um, we're going to do our best to try to, you know, not beat the news that focuses only on, uh, you know, the negatives. And this is not this is not what I want to do. I want to I want to have a good mix. But let's try and find positive things that would enrich investors and listeners lives and knowledge uh because i'm i'm very optimistic in nature and and uh, I, I like to 
to see, you know, look at all aspects of, of uh, investments in the economy. I think I'm the Debbie Downer here then because I'm yes. looking for every reason to say no to a deal because uh, that's how I know it's the best deal. If I, if I can't say no for, for whatever reason, that's how I know it's a great deal. So I, I apologize if I'm influencing that perspective on the <laughs> No, that's what you should be doing. That's you're, you're protecting, uh, you know, investors and it's absolutely the right mindset. Um, but uh, guys, you know, I thank you a lot for this episode. Um, Thanksgiving is right upon us, around the corner. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for both of you. You're great assets of Blake, and I'm not just saying it. I'm not just saying it because this is recorded. I, I truly mean it. Um, and uh, I had a, a great time chatting with you today. And uh, we'll we'll uh, catch up and record uh, in a few weeks. All right, um, awesome. Ditto. Back at you, Ali. We appreciate you. All right. Take care, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. See you next time. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.